Uh, please turn your Bibles and your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3. For several months, we have been exploring the book of Philippians. And this is a study that I've entitled, The Evangelistic Psyche. And of course, the goal of this study has been to consider the mindset of the evangelist. This is our mission as Christians to advance the gospel. In fact, I think it's probably fair to say that this is the very purpose of our present existence here on this earth, to proclaim Christ. And yet I would think that most of us would probably agree that we don't engage in this mission very well. And the reason is not for a lack of understanding, but proper motivation. Either we're distracted or we're fearful. It could really be any number of reasons, but whatever the case may be, the problem has less to do with whether or not we know how to share our faith and more to do with the fact that we don't want to share our faith. And so in this series, we're taking some time to explore the kind of thinking that accompanies evangelistic zeal. And we're doing this, of course, so that we too might rewire our thoughts and realign our hearts according to this purpose. The subject of this study is perhaps the second greatest evangelist who's ever lived, the greatest evangelist of all time after Jesus. And I'm speaking, of course, about that apostle to the Gentiles, the spearhead of Western Christianity and the author of nearly half of the books in the New Testament, and that's the Apostle Paul. It's often said that when we study the Scripture, that description is not necessarily the same thing as prescription, meaning just because you see a figure in the Scripture do a particular thing, that doesn't mean you should necessarily copy their behavior. But you can't say this when you come to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because in this letter, Paul commands us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to imitate his example. We saw this just a few weeks ago when, towards the end of chapter 3, Paul points to his own attitude towards suffering. And then he says in verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He then continues this thought in verse 17, writing, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul laid it all on the line for the gospel. He gave absolutely everything for the cause of Christ. As he writes these words, he even sits under house arrest in Rome, about to stand trial before the most powerful king on the planet, at which point Paul may very well be sentenced to die. And as he writes again, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, what he tells us is that we need to join him in imitating his example. We need to learn to think like him. We need to have our motives and priorities transformed so that we too would lay it all on the line for Jesus. So again, that's been the purpose of this series in Philippians, to learn how to think like Paul from his example so that we too might learn to give everything we have for the sake of the gospel. And by this point in our series... It's probably rather easy to think 
that Paul didn't have any flaws, that Paul didn't make mistakes. After all, all we've been exposed to so far are, are those thoughts and attitudes in Paul that are the object of divine approval. This makes it very easy for us to conclude that Paul himself was without error, or at the very least, without error after his conversion. But it isn't true. Paul made mistakes from time to time. Paul didn't always get it right. There were errors sometimes in his judgment, errors in his thinking. I think perhaps the most obvious example of this occurs when Paul separates from his companion Barnabas. If you're not familiar with this encounter, it's rather, I, I think, a rather fascinating development to consider in Paul's ministry, and most especially in light of everything that we've been studying here so far in Philippians. Paul and Barnabas, they were sort of the original dynamic duo. In Acts 13, the, the church at Antioch was worshiping in the Lord and fasting when the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then, of course, the church prayed over them and sent them on the very first, their very first missionary journey together, meaning Paul and Barnabas were a missionary team both personally and directly assembled by the Holy Spirit himself. Think about that for a minute. Before that, they had spent a year together uh, teaching in Antioch, and shortly after that, when the church in Antioch had decided to send relief to the brothers suffering a famine in Judea, there was only one natural choice, and that was Paul and Barnabas. All in all, Paul and Barnabas seemed to have been a very good fit for each other. Barnabas, you may have heard, his name means son of encouragement. And that seems to have been the quality that set him apart. He was a man of incredible faith. In fact, he was, it was his extremely sacrificial giving that inspired Ananias and Sapphira to vow their property to the church. And later on, when none of the other disciples wanted to have anything to do with Paul after his conversion because they were so afraid of him, it was Barnabas who went and got him and brought him to the apostles and introduced him. He seems to have been just an incredibly faithful and fearless individual, sort of the, the eternal optimist. And Paul, of course, had the ability to clearly and powerfully articulate the gospel. You put those two together, and that seems to have made a pretty good team. Paul could do the most of the speaking, the main part of the speaking, and Barnabas could provide the encouragement needed to keep the team moving on the mission field. So what is it that broke this team up? How, what would cause such a gifted ministry team to divide and the answer is a dispute over a man named John Mark. Most of us know John Mark today simply as Mark. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. And he was also Barnabas' cousin. When Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch after performing their relief work in Judea, they brought John Mark with them. And so when the Holy Spirit set them apart to preach the Gospel among the Gentiles, they decided to bring John Mark along to assist. Unfortunately, however, John Mark didn't last very long. After journeying to Bar uh, Barnabas' native island of Cyprus, they continued on into Asia Minor, sailing into the region of Pamphylia, and there John Mark deserted them, and he returned to Jerusalem. 
The Bible doesn't really tell us the reason why. All we know is that when Paul eventually wanted to return to Asia Minor to check in on the churches there, a, quote, sharp disagreement arose between him and Barnabas over John Mark. Because Barnabas wanted to take his cousin along with him. And Paul didn't think that was appropriate considering how he had deserted them before. So just like that, the two split up. Barnabas, apparently still believing in John Mark, took him and journeyed back to Cyprus, while Paul was accompanied by Silas on his second missionary journey. Now, considering what we've encountered here in Philippians, I think you can see where Paul is coming from, can you not? It's like what we saw in our last passage. Paul understood that those who don't endure in suffering fail to do so because they have their mindset on earthly things rather than heavenly things. Well, that seems to have been Paul's estimation of John Mark. He was a man motivated by earthly things, and so he couldn't be trusted to persevere. It was unwise to count on him given his track record. And Paul may have been right, at least in that respect. He was right on principle. But do you know who is right about the person of John Mark? It was Barnabas. We learn this in 2 Timothy 4 in what is perhaps one of the more understated and, and beautiful redemption stories in all the Scripture. In fact, it happens so quick, if you blink, you'll miss it. Paul's awaiting trial again. Only this time he's about to die. And as he writes Timothy, urging him to come and be by his side, and as he gives Timothy instructions for what to bring with him when he comes, Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry. How about that? I mean, that's quite the turnaround, is it not? He not only wants Timothy by his side as, you know, Timothy is most faithful disciple as he completes these final acts of ministry, but the other guy he wants there to help him finish out his ministry is the man he once rejected as too faithless to persevere. And that's John Mark. So it would seem that Barnabas was right. There was potential in John Mark after all. Paul just couldn't see it. This whole episode with Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, it serves to highlight a rather unfortunate reality in ministry, and it's one that we must come to terms with if we're going to faithfully execute the mission we've received from Christ. And that's the fact that disagreements are inevitable in the body of Christ. And just so we're clear about what I'm talking about here, I'm not talking about the sort of petty backbiting that so often happens when you toss a bunch of sinners together. I'm not talking about the disputes that occur because of our sin. Of course, that's inevitable too. So long as we have this indwelling sin nature, we're going to have these rifts that arise from the sins we commit against each other. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about are the disagreements that are going to arise even when we're not sinning against each other, even when, like Paul and like Barnabas, we're actually driven by our concern for the gospel. You go back to this whole dispute over John Mark, for instance, and there's nothing about that dispute to indicate that either Paul or Barnabas were driven by sinful motives when they divided. They just couldn't see eye to eye about John Mark. Paul thought his presence would hinder the ministry, and Barnabas disagreed. 
Their motives were seemingly pure. They were both incredibly passionate about about the gospel, actually. They were concerned about the right things. They just couldn't agree on the best approach to those shared concerns. And that's going to happen in the body of Christ. Even when our motives are pure, we're still going to run into conflict with our brothers and sisters from time to time. It's simply the result of being a finite being with a very limited set of knowledge. You will not agree on everything because you don't know everything. Meaning sometimes you're going to believe something sincerely. You're going to have a genuine conviction about some important doctrine or perhaps about the proper application of some biblical concept. And you're going to be sincerely wrong. And that's to be expected. That's a part of growth. Paul wasn't always right. And neither are you. And neither are your brothers and sisters. So this is going to happen. There are going to be disagreements that arise in the body of Christ as we battle together for the sake of the gospel. The question that we need to answer is, how do we handle these disagreements when they occur? Not if they occur, when they occur. What is our attitude to be and what are we to do when these divisions inevitably arise in the body of Christ? That's the question that Paul is going to address for us this morning in Philippians 4, 2 through 3. In this morning's passage, we encounter two women who appear to have a sincere disagreement over ministry issues. And once again, Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, provides us with an example of the type of thinking that we need to bring to these types of conflicts. Once again, if we're going to be faithful in our mission, if we're going to perform the task that Christ has given us to spread the gospel well, if we're going to fulfill our purpose here on this earth, then we need to pay attention to what Paul is saying here because as I think we'll see all the more clearly in just a few moments, this is a critical element to the mission. We have to learn how to handle our disagreements. So how do we do that? Let's go ahead and read our passage together and find out. Philippians 4, 2 through 3, Paul says this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In this morning's passage, Paul urges the Philippians to sort out this disagreement between these two dear sisters in Philippi. And in the process, he shows us the attitude, the action, and the apparatus that accompany gospel-minded agreement. Once again, that's the attitude, the action, and the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. And this morning, we're going to look at just The attitude, just the first one, the attitude. Once again, that's our topic for this morning, the attitude of gospel-minded agreement. And I think this can actually be described as a set of three interrelated attitudes, and those three attitudes are unity, trust, and urgency. Unity, trust, and urgency. 
Paul exhorts the Philippians to approach this disagreement with an attitude of unity, an attitude of trust, and an attitude of urgency. The last of these attitudes is probably the easiest to discern from the passage. Paul says, verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The word for entreat here is parakaleo, and it's the same word from which we get the term paraclete or comforter. You may have heard of the Holy Spirit referred to as the paraclete before. Matter of fact, I, I didn't plan this, but I just realized in this morning's songs, we actually refer to him as the paraclete. Well, this is the verb form of the same term. It's stronger than a simple request. In fact, if you look at the very next verse, verse 3, I think it highlights the nuance of what Paul is bringing out in his use of this term. Verse 3, Paul says, I ask you, true companion, help these women. And the word that he uses there for ask is the word erotao, which means simply to request. Paul requests that the Philippians help these two women agree, but that's not what's happening here in verse 2 with this word parakaleo. Parakaleo can mean to call on or entreat, but can it, all, it can also mean something like to exhort or to implore. And that distinction may be subtle, but what it indicates is that there's a kind of urgency in this request. Paul is pleading with these two women to agree. I think you can get a better sense of where this urgency is coming from once you understand the basis for it, which is really wrapped up in these other two attitudes, unity and trust. These elements begin to come out as we move on into verse 3. When Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. If you recall, up in the passage preceding this, Paul warns the Philippians about those who, quote, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he urges the Philippians to keep, his, to keep their eyes on his example rather than theirs. When we were in that passage, I noted that these enemies are probably professing believers. That's part of what makes their example so tempting. They look like genuine Christians, but they're not. Paul notes, verse 19, their end is destruction. They look like genuine Christians, but they're actually counterfeits. As Paul goes on to explain, their real God is their belly. They're a slave to their appetites. And this is ultimately why they cannot persevere in the faith. They have their mindset on earthly things. What's notable here is that Paul does not say this or even imply this about either Euodia or Syntyche. There's this disagreement that's arisen between these two women, but Paul doesn't attribute the source of that disagreement to unbelief. Instead, he still regards them both as believers. Now, why this is so, it isn't entirely clear. After all, we don't even really know the nature of this dispute. Perhaps it's related to the same kind of questions we encountered earlier in this letter about you know, persecution and, and circumcision and whether or not the church at Philippi ought to be suffering for their faith and whether or not there are ways to escape this persecution. Perhaps it has to do with all that. Perhaps not. Perhaps Euodia and Syntyche are quarreling over a completely unrelated issue. It's just not clear. What is clear, though, is that Paul does regard these two women as believers. 
And what this shows us, at the very least, is that there is an element of trust in Paul's approach to this dispute. If you look here, I think it's noticeable that Paul takes time to comment on their past service to Christ specifically. How they labored alongside with Paul for the advancement of the gospel. You know, when there's a dispute, it's inevitable that someone's wrong. They can't both be right, either, meaning either Euodia or Syntyche are in error here, maybe both. What's significant is that Paul doesn't automatically attribute that error to general unbelief or, from the tone of this passage, even really sin on the part of either woman. Think about this. You would expect that if Paul believed that either of these women were in sin, then he would urge them to repent. But that isn't what Paul does here. He doesn't urge them to repent. He urges them to agree. And he doesn't take the side of either woman. He doesn't indicate that Euodia is in the right and Syntyche needs to get on board or that Syntyche is in the right and Euodia needs to get on board. He treats them both equally. The idea seems to be that both parties need to consider whether or not they're the one in error, not the other. But Paul isn't automatically assuming sin on either part. Instead, he takes note of their history and seeing how faithful they've been in the past, he assumes that the two ladies are both still women in good standing with Christ and that they're just genuinely struggling to know what the right thing to do is. I have to tell you, this is an absolutely critical component in gospel-minded agreement, and it's an attitude that's actually commanded by the Scripture. The Scripture, of course, commands us to love our brothers and sisters. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul notes that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When Paul says that love believes and hopes all things, that's just another way of saying that love trusts. This is something that Reformed Christians can sometimes get confused. They'll take the doctrine of total depravity, which states that man is inherently corrupt and inclined to sin from birth. And they'll think that this means that we shouldn't trust other people. That we should just automatically assume the worst types of motives from everyone. If someone makes a mistake or if they're lacking in some aspect of Christian maturity, well, then obviously it's because of some secret sin in their life, some hidden motive, which they obstinately refuse to put away. And that may be true, but that's not how the scriptures tell us to relate to other people. Instead, it tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It tells us that love believes and hopes all things. This is why we give other people the benefit of the doubt, even when we know they have the capacity to sin against us and that there very well be some hidden motive driving their error. It's not because they necessarily deserve the benefit of the doubt. It's because that's how love operates. It's gracious to other people. It gives them the benefit of the doubt, perhaps even when they don't deserve it. It wants to believe other people. And will even look for reasons to trust what they're saying and only assume sin when they're forced to that conclusion. It doesn't go there eagerly or even willingly. It's sort of like what we see here in Paul. Paul doesn't just observe the present disagreement between these two women only. 
he also notes their past faithfulness to Christ. And based on that past faithfulness, he comes to the conclusion that the disagreement must be sincere. That it must be driven by pure motives. Listen, if you don't adopt this same attitude, then it's going to be impossible to find agreement with your brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, if you assume the worst in your brothers and sisters at the outset, then not only are you going to begin the discussion by accusing them of sin, perhaps falsely, which is then going to only escalate the conflict, but you're actually going to end up separating from them as well. That's what the scripture commands us to do, right? Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, they tell us that if someone makes a profession of faith but engages in unrepentant sin, then you need to separate from them. You need to do that in order to preserve the body from their influence, like what we saw with these individuals who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You need to draw a line in the sand and say, I know they say they're a Christian, but they're not, to keep the body safe from their harmful influence. And you need to do it as well, both to call that individual to repentance and to communicate to the world that their conduct does not reflect the character of Christ or his gospel. That's what we see in passages like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. You must separate not from the world, but from professing Christians who are not in the faith, both to call those individuals to repentance and to maintain the church's testimony to the world. So you see the problem that comes up if you come at disagreements with an attitude of trust or is that you're going to end up separating from people if you're assuming at the outset that sin or even unbelief is driving error then you're never going to be able to come to terms with your brother or sister you're going to either escalate the conflict by tossing around accusations that are not true at best or at worst you're simply going to separate before you ever have the opportunity to work out your differences. That doesn't benefit anyone. Not only is your brother or sister harmed by that kind of an approach to conflict, but you are as well. Again, no one is right 100% of the time. We're all vulnerable to error, even the Apostle Paul, right? So if you attack your brother right off the bat, or if you separate at the first sign of trouble, it may mean that you will suffer because you were actually the one in error, but you didn't approach the disagreement in a way that allowed them to correct your error. And by the way, we all want to be treated this way, don't we? We want to be given the benefit of the doubt. I think we've all been guilty of sincere errors in judgment from time to time, have we not? In fact, speaking about the problem of tossing around accusations before gathering the facts, I think about this every time something goes missing around my house. Something goes missing around the house, and automatically, whose fault is it? It's the kids, right? Those kids, how many times do I tell them not to take things out of my study? That's the first thing that goes through my mind. And quite often, I'll even begin to verbalize that complaint, start lecturing them about how my car keys or my sunglasses aren't a toy. And do you know what happens about nine times out of ten? I find what I was looking for right where I left it. And it wasn't the kid's fault at all. I was the irresponsible one. And here I am lecturing them about irresponsibility. 
I tell you, whenever I do that, I'm cut to the heart. Because I think to myself, I didn't mean to be irresponsible. It was an honest mistake. And then I think, so, so why am I speaking to my kids that way? Why am I not showing them the same kind of grace that I'd like to receive for my forgetfulness? That's the golden rule, isn't it? That's what Jesus says, summarizes all the law and the prophets. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Well, I think this is the way that we'd all like to be treated, right? We know that we're capable of making honest mistakes from time to time. We know how vulnerable to sincere errors in our judgment we are every now and then. And we want others to give us the benefit of the doubt when that happens, not to assume it's coming from malicious or deviant intent. Well, then if you want to fulfill the law and the prophets, then this is how you need to treat other Christians' errors as well. You don't start by accusing them of sin. You trust that they're working in good faith. And you approach them accordingly. That's what Paul is modeling for us here with Yodia and Syntyche. He doesn't immediately assume that the disagreement between these two women is due to unbelief or even really sin on their part. Instead, he views it in light of this long history of faithfulness and assumes it must be coming from genuine concern. Again, Paul begins with this attitude of trust. And this leads him to conclude that they're actually still unified. Whatever the reason for their disagreements are, they're not in the same camp as these enemies of the cross of Christ. And that means they must still be on the same team. And not just Yodi and Syntyche. It's not just them that are on the same team. But Clement as well, who's probably a leader in the church. And the rest of the Philippians also, who Paul refers to here individually, all, all of them individually as true companion. This is really interesting, by the way. We're going to come back to this next week as we talk about the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. But think about this. Paul is writing to this church collectively. He's writing to them corporately. And yet, as he talks about this particular disagreement, he makes it a point to to refer to them not as them, not as true companions, plural, but true companion, singular. He's doing that for effect. He's making it a point to address each and every member of the congregation individually with this statement. Again, we'll talk about the significance of this point more next week when we talk about the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. The point right now is to note that Paul wants each and every one of the Philippians to recognize that they also are on the same team as Yodia and Syntyche. They are his true companion and their true companion. Of course, Paul and his companions are on this team as well. Yodi and Syntyche are his fellow co-workers. They've labored side by side with him in the gospel, and this disagreement has changed none of that. So are you following the logic here? Because this is really important to the rest of our discussion. The idea is that Paul approaches this disagreement with an attitude of trust, and that trust leads him to conclude that they're all still unified. One of these women, or or both even, are in error, and yet Paul doesn't automatically chalk up the error to unbelief or sin on their part. Instead, he takes the attitude that they are still on the same team and that they're approaching this issue from a point of genuine concern. And he's doing this even to the degree that he trusts 
that if they just take a moment to look at the issue together, motivated by the right priorities, then they're going to be able to reach an agreement. And this sets the stage for the rest of our discussion. These two concepts, beginning once again with this attitude of urgency. I said a moment ago that we can get a better sense of where Paul's urgency is coming from once we understand the basis for it. And you can see where I'm getting at now, can't you? Well, the reason why Paul doesn't just ask these two women to agree, but actually implore them, beseech them, entreat them to agree, is because they are on the same team. They are on the same team, but they're not acting like they're on the same team. And the dissonance between those two realities, between their oneness in Christ and their division with one another, creates this discord that has to be silenced. Like nails screeching down a chalkboard, that's the division taking place here. It emits this grating and aggravating noise. And it needs to stop. Just so you understand, I'm using my imagery there quite intentionally. You see, when, we, when you start to consider the problems that arise with division in the body of Christ, and most specifically the problems that arise evangelistically, because again, that's the topic here. We're talking about the evangelistic mindset. Well, when you consider the effects of division in the church evangelistically, there are at least two problems that come to mind. The first is that division weakens the church's ability to proclaim the gospel to the world. It weakens the church's ability to directly proclaim the gospel to the world. I think you see Paul hint at this point in verse 3. Once again, consider who these women are and how Paul thinks of them, how he refers to them as he hears about this division. They are women who Paul thinks of as co-laborers. That's pretty high esteem, isn't it? How would you like the Apostle Paul to consider you a co-worker? That's how Paul thought of them. They were part of his ministry team. Well, what happens when team members can't get along? Uh, Maybe think of a literal sports team, right? What happens when, say, a quarterback or a head coach can't agree on the right way to run an offense? It affects the play on the field, doesn't it? You know, the coach is calling in plays, and and the players are ready to listen to the coach, but then the quarterback starts messing with the plays at the line, or maybe not even that. Maybe he just fails to put in maximum effort. Now everyone's confused. Do they listen to the quarterback or to the coach? The chaos spreads, and now the entire team is struggling to move the ball downfield because they aren't working together. Or if you're not a sports fan, think about your job, you know, your actual co-workers. And Paul talks about these individuals as co-laborers. Think about your co-laborers. It would appear that Euodia and Syntyche are leaders in the church on some level, if not in office, at least in terms of respect. The church admires them. They respect them. Tell me, have you ever been in a situation where you have two different bosses who don't get along? If so, what's that like? Does the rest of your department or the rest of your shift or whatever your unit is, does it thrive under that kind of environment? Of course not. 
Again, there's confusion. Employees don't know who to listen to, or they're trying to follow the directions of one boss without angering the other one, and so they sort of follow instructions halfway. No one can get anything done because of the discord that exists between those two managers. And this is most especially true when you have someone fighting against you at the same time. This is why I sort of like the football analogy better. Division is one thing when a team is trying to accomplish a goal where the only competition is themselves. It's another thing entirely when you have an opponent actively working against you to defeat you. When that happens, when you're facing a united opponent with a disunited front, the results are catastrophic. And that's precisely what's happening in Philippi. Remember, the Philippians are suffering persecution for their faith. They're being attacked. And the problem is that if they can't get their act together and face their opponent together, you know, encourage one another, for instance, instead of attack each other, pick one another up, one another up, instead of tear one, one another down, they're going to get crushed. You can sort of think of it like the shell of an egg. I know a lot of times we think of eggs as fragile but they're actually incredible feats of engineering, how they can take pressure and redistribute it around the entire shell. What happens when something punctures that shell and disrupts the structural integrity of the egg? The whole thing just crumbles, right? It falls apart. It's worthless. It can't resist any kind of pressure. That's what Paul senses is taking place with these two leading women at Philippi. And it's why he takes the time to call them out by name. And not only them, but everyone else in the church to help them come to an agreement. It's because this disagreement is not a little disagreement. This conflict threatens the structural integrity of the entire church and their ability to stand witness to Christ together. It's like it says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. It says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Friends, listen, Satan understands this principle. And that's why the scripture tells us in places like Ephesians 4 that one of his chief strategies is to divide the people of God. Listen, if he cannot destroy the church, then he at least hopes to silence it so it cannot save other people. That's probably the very point of the Philippian persecution. He's trying to crack the shell of this incredibly faithful church. And Paul's concern is that it's working. The stakes are incredibly high here. So again, he doesn't just ask Euodia and Syntyche to agree. He doesn't just request that they get along. No, he urges them. He beseeches them. He pleads with them. This division is an emergency, and it's something that needs to be taken care of immediately. The second result of division is that it weakens the church's indirect proclamation of the gospel not just its direct proclamation of the gospel but its indirect proclamation of the gospel in other words the first problem is that division hinders the church's active efforts at proclaiming christ the second is that it hinders her inactive efforts as well when i think of this concept i think of another macedonian church just a few miles down the road from philippi which seemed to have a similar kind of reputation as the church at philippi and that's the church at thessalonica 
regarding the character of this church, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. In that passage, Paul notes that the church at Thessalonica not only proclaimed the gospel with their words, but with their actions as well. And they did it to the degree that they, like Paul, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The fact is, Christian conduct is noisy. We proclaim Christ both with our words and with our actions. I like the way Paul says it there in 1 Thessalonians. He says, that the word of the Lord, quote, sounded forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia. If you can think of a, a trumpet blast, like from a herald, and if you can think about the noise reverberating off the walls of the room after the blast is finished, that's the picture that Paul is describing here. There's this resounding blast that's burst forth from Thessalonica, and it's echoing throughout the surrounding region. That's the effect we have as Christians, not only with our words, but with our actions. What we do will either support or undermine what we say. And that's why I compare this discord between Yodia and Syntyche and their ongoing disagreement with one another. That's why I compare it to nails screeching on a chalkboard. There's a sound that's bursting forth from this conduct, but it isn't the melody of the gospel that's going out. It's the noise of confusion and disorder. Paul is very much concerned about this point as well. You go back to the end of chapter 1, and this was actually the main reason why he was concerned with the unity of the church. Chapter 1, verse 27, he implores them. He says, Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as he explains what he means by that statement, he doesn't point to their honesty as businessmen or to their faithfulness in their marriages or to their patience in the, faith of inju- in the face of injustice or, or anything like that. That's not what he means in that context by living a life worthy of the gospel. Instead, he points to their unity as a church. He says... Live this way, right? So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Listen, division is not worthy of the gospel. Not only is it contrary to the character of the God we worship, who himself exists as one God and three persons in perfect agreement with himself. But it's also contrary to the love and grace that's supposed to characterize those who've been transformed by the gospel. Basically, we should be able to bear with one another long enough to work out our differences. And when we can't do that, it proclaims to the world loudly 
that even we ourselves don't truly believe what we say we believe. Paul understands this. He knows how the world is going to react if the Philippians respond to this persecution by fighting with each other. The world's going to say the same thing. It always says when a church splits over petty differences, for example, or when cliques or factions war with one another in a church. They're going to say, see that? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They, they don't believe any of this stuff. There's nothing to this gospel stuff that they're talking about. I think I've pointed this out before, but the book of Acts shows us that when the church really did start taking off, when the gospel really started exploding across Judea like wildfire, it wasn't necessarily the signs and wonders that fueled that fire. It wasn't even necessarily the preaching of the apostles alone that did it. Rather, it was the love that the church had for one another and the unity that they expressed toward one another that made it happen. It was when they were selling off their things and sharing what they had in common that the people of Israel were suddenly gripped by the gospel. It was when they carried one another's burdens and moved and acted as one that the world stood up, took notice, and said, how do I get in on that? How do I become a part of that community? Listen, all of that is undermined when we cannot agree with each other. So if we're going to be faithful to our mission, if we're going to perform the task that Christ has given us to spread the gospel well, then we have to take this into account. We must fight to agree with one another. So how do we do that? Well, that's something we're going to take a look at in greater detail next week as we explore the action and the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. That's where we, where we really get into the how-to how portion of gospel-minded agreement. And I think that discussion will be helpful considering all that we've said about gospel downgrade the past several months. But for now, the thing I'd have you note is that gospel-minded agreement starts with the right attitude. After all, this isn't an easy thing to arrive at. The disagreements that will arise in the body of Christ, they're sincere. Meaning that there's going to be passion on both sides of the table. And everyone involved is going to have trouble seeing how they're wrong when they are wrong. Including you. It's not a quick or easy process. It takes work, but at the same time, it's worth it. In fact, not only is it worth it, but it's essential, meaning we don't really have a choice. It isn't really optional. The advancement of the gospel itself is at stake in whether or not we agree with each other. And until you understand that point, you're not going to be willing to pay the price it takes to be of the same mind with your brothers and sisters. So again, it starts here with the attitude and understanding. It starts with understanding the urgency of gospel-minded agreement. And what is that attitude rooted in? I think we've seen it here this morning. It's rooted in an attitude of unity. It's rooted in understanding that brother or sister sitting across the table is a part of the body of Christ. That you already, already are, in fact, united in Christ. That you are joined already to the same head. And this, in turn, comes from an attitude of trust. 
You begin by assuming the best in the other person, not the worst. You trust that their desires are sincere. And then on the basis of that trust, you try to understand why they hold the positions they do. If you can do that, if you can just trust your brother or sister long enough to listen to them, then as hard as the process of reconciliation is, you'll be able to fight your way through it. And who knows? Maybe you'll discover that they actually have a point. And you'll come away with a more mature perspective on your faith. Maybe you'll be the one that grows as a result of their insight. So start here. Start with an attitude of trust and unity. And let that thought provide you with the urgency needed to fight for agreement with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray.